Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is the third and last episode of the new strategic selling, which sounds so fucking boring even as I say it. But you know what I've learned? I've learned that sometimes in the weeds, there's shitloads of fucking gold. And so what this is, what this book is, go back and listen to episode one and two. This is the definitive guide to the decision-making step of a consultative sales process, which again, God damn it, sounds so fucking boring, but I kid you not. If you learn this, the market value of being good at sales is like a million dollars a year. You know, if you keep working up, if you get better jobs, if you sell better shit, and thus, in the same way that I used to detest drilling in wrestling. You just, hey, you know what drilling is? Drilling is do the same technique with perfect deliberate focus for hours in a row. But you know why you drill? So you can win wrestling matches. You know why you win wrestling matches? So if you have to defend yourself, you can slam someone on the concrete. And so drilling actually is the skill of slamming someone on the concrete. And in the same way as that, this is the skill of making a million dollars. And so we've talked about um, his whole method. You know, they, Bob and Stephen Hyman, um, talk about the, the different buying roles. And so the user buyer, the economic buyer, the technical buyer, and the coach. And so in every complex sale, those roles exist. And if you want to make sure that you do a good job, that you cover all those bases, you got to listen up. And so we just covered the economic buyer. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Now we're going to go to the user buyer. User buying influence. User buyers are the people who will actually use or supervise the use of your product and service once the purchase is made. Their role is to make judgments about the impact of that product or service on the job to be done. So you sell sprinkler systems to a golf course. You have to find the economic buyer and you know that person they might own the golf course or they're on the board or or all these other things okay so you found the economic buyer but the user buyer they might be the greenskeeper or greenskeepers uh you know those are the people that you know they're going to be the one fixing your sprinklers they're going to be one dealing with this every single day for 20 years you know so you could see a world where you find the economic buyer but there's this grumpy ass old greenskeeper who tells the economic buyer, hey, I don't like this. Hey, I will quit if you bring in these sprinklers. And the economic buyer is like, shit, okay, I don't want that to fucking happen. Um, okay, uh, no, we're not going to do it. And the whole sale is lost from a decision maker you had no idea about. So the key phrase for this, this user buyer is on the job. User buyers are concerned primarily with how a sale is going to affect everyday operations in their own area or departments. Their focus is narrower than that of economic buyers. 
People acting as user buyers will ask you about areas of day-to-day -day concern, such as reliability of your product, service record, retraining needed, downtime needed, ease of operations, maintenance, etc. So, you know, like, hey, okay, um, if we if we put a hundred of these sprinklers in, how many of them are going to fail over a year? And you're like, well, twenty. They're like, fuck you, no. Whereas, you know, like the economic buyer might never have even asked that, or ease of operations. Let's say one of these fails. How hard is it to change? It's like, well, you know, all you got to do is you just, you can't change it. You have to pay us. I'm like, wait, so 20 of them are going to fail every year and I have to buy a new one. Um, that's, that's a secret hidden cost I didn't even know about. Fuck this. Or man, these are really hard to change. Um, we're going to have to do this like six month training class and only two people at the golf course are going to know how to change it. Uh, I don't know. Because the focus of the user buyer is how a sale will affect their jobs, their reaction to sales proposals, as well as their predictions about performance tend to be subjective. This means that because personal success hinges on the success of your product or service, you have to take subjectivity into account when you're selling to them. So user buyers, they're the, they're the people who are like, with them, what's in it for me? Okay. And so like, listen, bro, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to make it 15 more years. I'm an alcoholic. All right. But, but working this job at the golf course, I get a free fucking house. Okay. So I want to keep my free house and I know how to do all this shit. So you're telling me to put in new sprinkler systems because it's going to nebulously make this fucking business more efficient. Bitch, I'm an alcoholic. User buyers want good performance, not only because it makes their people productive, but it makes them look good. If they hitch their wagon to the new product, how are they gonna do? So if you're selling that greenskeeper, let's say you're actually selling solar uh, solar sprinklers that are never fail. What you do is be like, hey, just, I, I get it, dude. You're an alcoholic, man. You live in a house. It's totally fine. I live in a house. I'm an alcoholic. I got it, man. Look, we're, we're the same. But how, uh, if you had to guess, if you look at 100 of these sprinklers, how many fail? per year they're like 30 like when when did you put these in like 25 years ago I'm like okay um do you are you in charge of managing a budget like yeah it's a small budget but like i have expenses and water is one of the biggest expenses like, okay well you know no obligation but putting these sprinklers in it you know like zero are gonna fail every year you're never gonna have to mess with them and they cut your expenses down by 90 percent um and then if i'm that greenskeeper Think of how smart I look. A, I got more time for drinking, but B, dude, I'm, you know, solar, like I'm basically a tree hugger now. And you know, everybody loves that shit. And so in every sale, there's at least one person whose central focus is the job to be done. There's always at least one user buyer. But in most complex sales, there's a, there's a lot of times more than one person playing this role. You know, if you're, if you're selling group insurance to a large firm, for example, user buyers might include the employee benefits manager, a personnel manager, union reps, other agents of the employees being served. You know, if you're putting 30 new computers into a branch office, they might include the branch manager, you know, a head of data processing, individual operators, you know, so imagine if you're selling computers and you just talk to the president, imagine if you didn't didn't know that the IT director was blind. And you know, your computer, it can be set up, you know, like there's 
handicap assistance bullshit in your computer and you you could be great but you get buy-in from the cfo and the it come it it director comes to the final presentation using one of those canes and the whole point was you were going to show the it director how this works and the it director's like hey bitch i'm blind you obviously don't use critical thinking no user buyers cannot be ignored if a key user buyer isn't sold you have to you'll have a very difficult time closing the sale so think of caddyshack you remember that movie um imagine the greenskeeper from caddyshack what ha- what would happen if he hated you look what he did to a fucking groundhog he will destroy you it will be biblical a friend of the author's encountered this type of sabotage several years ago when he sold a half a million dollar training program to a major textile firm. The textile company president was so impressed with its miraculous possibilities that he agreed to give it a trial run in every one of his 12 plants. Unfortunately, our friend neglected to contact the managers of those mills, the key user buyers, before he closed the sale. So, selling a bunch of training, 12 different textile plants. Hey, we're going to make your textile plants more efficient. Well, imagine if I run my own textile plant and I'm already busy. I'm already working 60 hours a week. My fucking life is tough. Okay. You know, I started on the line You know, I was homeless. I've worked my way up. I will fucking die before I don't fail this company. You know, I am loyal. And then I get told, hey, this is going to take you 25 hours a week for five weeks. You've got to train all your people. I'm like, Hell no, I don't. After the paperwork was signed, when he showed up to help implement the program, the plant managers treated him like an outside troublemaker who had gone over their heads to the boss. The miraculous result? After the program went online, all 12 mills were less effective than they were before. So you're going to have this passive resistor or maybe even active resistor. Um, uh, of these 12 plant managers who are like, bitch, I'm so fucking busy. I'm going to do five hours a week of this. I'm going to, I'm going to take five hours a week off of my plate right now. Give it to this, even though it needs 25. And then the result is less effective than they were before. Our friend learned a valuable lesson from that experience. Realizing that he had been done in by his own ignorance of the players, he vowed never again to overlook the user buyer. He says, the next time someone's going to use my stuff, he's going to want it. But think of how that could have been solved. You know, let's say you, you could buy it from the CFO. You're like, hey, this sounds great. Um, one thing I've learned, though, is that it's really critical. You know, like, I don't want to just like sell you guys this shit. Like, it's got to work. You know, like, I have a huge vested interest in this working. And so um, would it be all right? Can I have a conference call with all 12 of the user buyers and just talk to them? And then you talk to them and you're like, hey, how are you guys doing? Oh, you're working 60 hours a week? Well, fuck. Like, hey, if I could tell you that you could maybe work 65, 70, 75 hours a week for five weeks and then you could work 40 hours a week forever, would that be interesting to you? And then you sell all the user buyers and then none of that shit happens. Caddyshack man, don't kill you. So that is the user buyer. So that's the second. So we have the economic buyer, the user buyer. Now we're going into the technical buyer. User buyers can be difficult, but technical buyers have to be. One sales sales rep we know describes these buying influences as people who can't say yes, 
only know, and they usually do. As is the case with user buyers, complex sales usually involve several people playing different technical buying influence roles. Okay, so that's interesting. So the so the the economic buyer, there's one of them. Like mentally think there's one person with the gold. User buyers, there's probably a lot of people using your product, and you gotta like think it through and like go talk to a lot of them. In the technical buyer, there's probably a few of these as well. The technical buyer is a gatekeeper. Technical buyers don't say no because they are ornery. They throw blocks in your way because it's their job. The technical buyer, technical buyer's role is to screen out. They're the gatekeepers. At a wedding, the technical buyer would be the one to stand up and say, hold it, I do know a reason they shouldn't be married. Jeanette's a whore. It's the technical buyer's task to limit the field of sellers and come up with a short list. The objections of technical buyers may seem petty at times, but these people serve a necessary function. The screening that technical buyers do on candidate vendors makes it much less likely that, as a close approaches, an unforeseen technicality will get in the way. We call them technical buyers, in fact, because they screen out based on technicalities. Okay, so user buyer is the person who's going to use your shit. Technical buyers, and this is where like I didn't remember this until rereading it, but the technical buyers, they're the ones who's going to object on a technicality. And so a lot of times that, you know, like in my mind, I was thinking the technical buyers technical, like I was thinking that they'd be the IT director and sometimes they are, but they are regardless of that. They're the one that objects on technicalities. You know, they're concerned with technology, but many of them, might not even have the technical expertise or know as much as you do as the sales rep. Uh, technical buyers make judgments about the measurable and quantifiable aspects of your product or service based on how well it meets a variety of specifications. And these specifications may or may not be technology related. And so even the mental model of having the idea that there's a technical buyer, there's someone out there that's going to object on a technicality is super helpful. You know, because let's say that you have a sale where, you know, by luck or by whatever, there's not really a technical buyer because, you know, maybe you talked to them first, you had drinks, they were like, man, I love you. And you're like, cool. And then you never see that side of that person. But if you go into every sale, assuming that there's one person that owns the gold, There's a bunch of users that you got to make sure are happy with your product, though they're not going to make the decision and though they might not even be able to say no, it's fucking important that they like this shit. And then there's a technical buyer or buyers who's going to object on technicalities. So it could be the IT director. Really, the root of it is they don't want to fucking do any work, but they're going to be like, well, you know, this is a we we use Microsoft 365 and, you know, this doesn't integrate that well. So. No, um, you know, maybe it's the legal counsel. They may know nothing at all about your product from a technology point of view, but the lawyer can still screen you out based on terms and conditions, the legal technicalities. So, you know, in a complex sale, you got to make sure the IT director, you, know, you got to figure out who those technical buyers would be. And that's tough because like people want to pretend to be really agreeable and nice. So you got to like kind of use critical, think- critical thinking and be like, okay, well, this IT director seems kind of ornery. I got to make sure that they're good. And then you're like, oh, well, the purchasing guy, I need to make sure that they're happy. 
and the legal counsel, like I got to make sure, you know, I got to call them up and be like, Hey, I, I assume this is no issue, but this is our standard terms and conditions. Like, are you fine with this? I mean, we're flexible. We can work through this. And they're like, actually, we're not fine with it. Like, oh, well, thank God I fucking called you because, you know, if I didn't call you, my deal would legit die right there. Even when there's a seemingly perfect match between your product or service and a potential customer's needs, a technical buyer can still throw a wrench into the works and screen you out based on specifications. Anything from price to delivery schedules to, deli to logistics and references. In each of these examples and in countless others, a technical buyer making judgments about technicalities can pull the plug on a sale that everyone else wants. So even if the president of the golf course in that sprinkler example wants it, even if the greenskeeper, you know, you convinced him, you're like, hey, you remember when you were in Vietnam? Yeah. You like shooting? Yeah. You do a lot of shooting? Well, I don't have that much time to shoot. You're like, well, if I could free up an extra 10 hours a week for you to shoot, would you like that? Greenskeeper was like, fuck yeah. And then the greenskeeper's on board. But maybe there's a secret hidden technical buyer, you know, the the 67-year-old chairperson of the finance committee on the board who used to be retired, but their current only meaning in life comes from them ruthlessly running this board to give themselves some semblance of relevance. And maybe that guy is like, hey, president, CEO, hey, greenskeeper, you know what? We're not going to do this because we need a blood and urine sample from the vendors and we need a blood and urine sample from the vendors to prove that they're not on drugs so that our insurance policies don't go up and they're not going to do that. So we're not going to do this because technical buyers are often more difficult to spot than either user buyers or economic buyers. They pose special problems to the sales reps. It can be fatal to underestimate the power of a technical buyer. While some technical buyers are the seemingly invisible, others are all too visible. Technical buyers can be difficult, not only because of their screening role, but because in playing that role, they often run interference for the economic buyer, making it hard for you to see them. You know, they're like, hey, all the details are in the request for proposal. Don't ask me any questions. In fact, the favorite game of technical buyers is to try to convince you that they are economic buyers, that they have the final authority to approve the sale. And it's to help you avoid problems like this and more that you need to rely on the last buying influence, the coach. So, fuck, man. Dude, that's fucking gold. Um, and so he's going into the last buying influence, and, and that is the coach. And now I will say, I don't know. I mean, yes, you want to have a coach. You know, you want to, like, follow the process and shit. However, in the real world, you might not always have a coach. But being on the lookout for someone who can give you some inside baseball who you can you know kind of win over to your side who has influence with the organization is a good idea and, and be on the lookout the role of a coach is to guide you in the sale by giving you information that you need in order to manage it to a satisfactory close one that guarantees you not only get the order but also get satisfied customers solid references and repeat business a coach can help you clarify the validity of your single sales objective, identify and meet the people who are filling the other buying roles for that objective, and assess the buying situation so that you're most effectively positioned with each one. 
To close any complex sale, you should develop at least one coach. And then he goes into a bunch of shit on how to like figure out who's the best coach. But like, I mean, use your mind, dude. Like, it's got to be someone who's credible with the organization. You know, if you just go pick a bum off the street, you know, even if the bum is like that, the president's long lost son. You know, that 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 that's not going to help you. Okay. Um, but then I think the only other interesting thing about the coach that I'll say, um, and I'm just going to like paraphrase here, is that he talks about how to ask for coaching, and. What the point that he's making is that you're not necessarily asking them to sell the deal for you. You're asking for advice. And so most people welcome the opportunity to do coaching. And I think one of the best lessons I ever learned in sales was the ask for advice model. And the ask for advice model is basically the idea that people hate to be sold, but they love to help. And it's a weird, like super nuanced, soft skill to do this because you truly have to approach it with a good intent. You have to approach it with, you're honestly just asking this person for advice, but if the conversation happens to drift to an opportunity, you're open to it. And so two, um, two examples, one, when I got my job as a financial advisor, so I like tangentially knew somebody kind of that was a financial advisor and legit my only decision making criteria was they have two houses sounds cool and so i reached out to him and i was like hey what can i can i ask your advice like I, i'm curious about getting in the investment world um would you be open to giving me some advice and they were like yeah grab lunch and so i went and i grabbed lunch and dude i remember being so like i'm being so fucking nervous like i i practiced how the conversation was going to go for like an hour because man when before you know how to do sales it's like you don't even know what you don't know you know it's like i don't even know how to start to try to kiss a girl like do i just kiss them like i don't i don't know dude and so i went and really good conversation and i was like hey i've been investing since i was 15 but like i don't know shit mostly my background is sales and so um, I, I feel like there's an interesting combination here of investing in sales, but um, I really don't know that much. What do you say? And you know, he he's basically like, fuck yes, you would do great. Um, sales is the most important. You can learn the investments and do you want me to introduce you to the complex manager? And I was like, yes, I got an interview. I came super highly recommended by this dude and I got hired. And now compare that to if I'd reached out well, first of all, if I just like apply through the normal channels, like fucking no way that would have worked. But if, even if I'd reach out to him, I was like, hey, can I talk to you about an opportunity? I would. I think I'd be a very good fit for this company. Would you please recommend me? Like maybe he would and maybe that would still work. But the ask for advice model is pro. And it, what, what he's saying is do this asking for advice concept to a coach that knows the organization that you're trying to do your sale and doors will just open up. Um, second example, when I was a financial advisor, so I got that job and then I was like, fuck, dude, I don't know fucking anything. And so, you know, I learned a bunch about investments and, but I was like, dude, the only thing I really know how to do is like ask people for advice. And so like I got, I developed this super weird niche skill where I had, I don't know, 200 coffees with um, random successful people. And I just approached it like, hey, can you give me some advice? And I'm like, hey, I'm a, I'm a young, hungry advisor. Um, you know, my I, the team I'm on 
uh, specializes in corporate executives at public companies with concentrated stock positions. Super specific. And I just so happen to be meeting with someone who's a corporate executive at a public company that likely has a concentrated stock position. And I'm like, but you know, like I'm, I'm curious, I know you work at Dow Chemical, um, you know, I'm not asking for your business, but I'm just wondering like, if you were me, what are some of the things that you would think about? And then they give you some good advice. And then at the end, they were oh, like 50% of the time, they were like, hey, let's, I mean, but so tell me a little bit more. Like he, I've got, you know, I've, I've got this much in investments, I've got this much in 401k, but dude, if I had just randomly found this person and been like, how much money do you make? Do you want to invest with me? It wouldn't have worked. So summarizing coach as find the person who makes the most sense and then use the ask for advice model. Okay. So those are the four buyers. That's the goal. That is the massive, most important part of all of this. I'm going to hit on one or two other things that um, are important that he calls out. And then we're going to wrap this bitch up. So um, the, the next thing that he says is, is really, I'm summarizing, he calls it red flags, but it's, it's the idea of slow down for yellow lights. Okay. In a strategic selling seminar, we were in the midst of going over the buying influences when one of them, uh, when one of the attendees, a young energetic man who had twice been a top sales rep of his division, threw his pencil on the ground and looked up with an expression of odd elation. You could see his worksheet was covered in tiny red flags. You know, he says, I just discovered something. I thought this was one of my best accounts. Now I realize I don't even have a prospect. I guess I'm going to have to do some thinking. And so um, I know I talked about this a little bit, but the, the biggest thing that, um, you know, like is important here is, is so he's walking into when you're doing this and when you're assessing your accounts, when you have a yellow light, when you have a red flag, and he's talking about how he's you know doing this exercise where he's having people like do little red flags and shit. But when you have a red flag, you have to fix it. And so, um, I I was three months into my new my job that I'm still doing right now. I sold a small assessment. I sold the other seventy thousand dollars of work, and then uh, we do that. It's been you know two or three months going well, and then. We get in there and dude, I thought that I was gonna about to sell this three hundred thousand dollar deal. And you know, we were we were working with this this unique fella who had um, built a lot of analytics for this company, uh, and we were gonna help support him. And he told us he was the economic buyer, and that he had been given authority to do everything. And he also was um, you know kind of like the user buyer because he was gonna be using a lot of these analytics. And so we're like, holy shit, this is cool, man. And we uh, we closed a small little assessment, and he was the buyer. He was the economic buyer. And then we were closing the seventy thousand dollar deal, and it was really hard. We had to like talk to the CFO, and it was it was weird. But we got it done, and, and we shouldn't have just that was a red flag. You know, we shouldn't have fucking just ignored it. But when it got time for the three hundred thousand dollar deal, our decision maker who we thought was both the economic buyer and the user buyer, but we didn't even think like that. We just were like, hey, it's a guy. He couldn't do anything. He he started pointing fingers. He was like, the project's off the rails. You know, like, and, and the CFO came in, started dealing with us for the first time, had no context, and the deal died. And it turns out we should have investigated more. 
Dude, we didn't even use our coach, a partner at our own accounting company. We didn't really use our coach very well. You know, the um, the economic buyer was the CFO. He was also a little bit of the technical buyer. Like he was trying to object, but like not be an asshole, not be an asshole about it, but just being fair. And our contact who we thought he was the user buyer and economic buyer, he was a turncoat. And when we started cleaning his metaphorical house and we saw all the fucking bodies inside the house, he just started pointing at us. He's like, they killed him. And we're like, what do you mean, dude? We're house cleaners. Okay. These, that body's been decomposed from for five years. He's like, no. And so he turned into the biggest technical buyer blocker ever. But if I had analyzed that account in this framework, I wouldn't have accepted the presentation to our shitty little fake decision maker. I would have creatively, without hurting this dude's ego, found a way to talk to the CFO. And so that's that's the red light concept. When you start, or red flag concept, when you start seeing these little red flags, these yellow lights, you have to slow down. We know that from Mahan, it's good to reiterate. Um, a couple automatic red flags or automatic yellow lights in the decision-making step. Um, missing information. So let's say you can't find the technical buyer. Who's gonna object on a technicality? If you can't find them, that's a, that's a red flag, that's a yellow light. Maybe you're in the Goldilocks zone where there's nobody, but um, probably need to figure it out. Uh, another automatic red flag is uncertainty about key information. You know, hey, I, who's the decision maker here? Like, okay, fuck man, you got a lot of work to do. Uh, next is any uncontacted buying influence. Any buyer ignored is a threat. So you don't need to contact and convince each of the key players yourself. Um, in fact, he brings up a, a point that I'm, I'm not going to, you know, like do justice to, but he has a whole thought process of like, sometimes the best move, if the CEO is the economic buyer is for your CEO to contact their CEO, just because, you know, CEOs are comfortable talking to CEOs and you say, Hey, you know, for any deal above a million dollars, you know, it's our process for my CEO to, he would love to talk, you know, 30 minutes with your CEO. Is that okay? That's an option. But, but an automatic red flag is if, if, if there's this mysterious decision maker that you, um, that you or someone that you're directing has never contacted, it's a red flag, man. It's a yellow light. You got to figure it out. The next one hit just real fucking close to home. Any buying influence new to the job. And so I'm so stupid all the time, dude. But I, I last year I lost a big $300,000 sale, which, you know, still might or might not happen because we had someone who I fucking thought was going to be the user buyer, AKA the person who benefits from this, the new CFO. But it turns out that fucker was new. And so I should, that's an automatic red flag. And I ignored him. I mean, I did talk to him, like, but not in a one-on-one. -on -one. And it turns out he was the technical buyer and he blew up the whole deal. He tried to use it uh, instead of like, we're gonna build a bunch of dashboards. He was like, let's just do it out of our financial system. And it's like, bitch, you can't. But like, it was, I, I just, I fucked it up. Dude, I even remember I was driving back from Ohio one afternoon and my plan was to call this guy because I was like getting the spider sense that I needed to do this. And dude, I pussied out. I didn't call him. Fuck. Lessons learned. Uh, okay. And then the last automatic red flag 
is uh, reorganization. So, you know, if there's mergers, if there's spinoffs, if there's, um, you know, transition, that's just, that's automatic. You got to tend to that. That's a red flag. Sales success is always the result of constant vigilance. This all needs to become second nature. Used in this way, the red flag technique is a continuous assessment device, a feedback mechanism that enables the strategy conscious sales professional to maintain an effective position in the face of every contingency. And ultimately, I will say again, get rich, jacked, and become a god among men. And so the last thing before we wrap this up is titled The Importance of Winning. And he starts this chapter by basically being like, hey, fuckers, ultimately, remember, we're taking scalps here, and this actually has to work. We want this to win. But our definition of winning is different from others you might have encountered. He says they're not trying to gain victory over their accounts or anything silly like that. They are trying to figure out that old apocryphal win-win. The heart of our notion is self-interest. Speak to me, Lord. We've said that you will win in a buy-sell encounter when you come out of it feeling positive. The reason you feel positive is that you perceive that encounter as having served your personal self-interest. Self-interest is misunderstood and unfairly criticized by many well-meaning people. Many sales professionals, even though they strive energetically to win, are still reluctant to admit the importance of winning in their lives, and some of, some of them actually feel guilty about wanting to win. And so this is like a key philosophical point that I think you, that dude, it took me fucking five years to understand this. Um, but it's, I think, critical for sales success because he's not talking about being a selfish prick. Okay. He's talking about at scale, the way that you win in sales is you go out and you find people who actually would win also if they buy your shit. You find people bleeding out you give them a tourniquet. The key point here, and the thing that Sandler and Mahan do really well, and I'm, I'm wondering where Mahan stole all this shit from, it's not a sale until you can figure out if the client even has any problems and can your solution help them. If the answer is no, don't sell them anything. So uh, yeah, go, go find someone else who has the pain. So I remember I was in the ghetto and I was filling gas up at the gas station and some, some guy, real shifty, on meth comes up to me acting aggressive and is like hey can i wash your car for five dollars but see a little known fact about my opinion of car washes it's that they're a waste of time money and i have to say this they're retarded now i can say that because i have adhd so i tell this guy no thank you he keeps he keeps pushing me and i'm getting pissed because he clearly doesn't know about negative reverse selling and, uh, hey, you wouldn't be interested in a car wash, would you? No, he's pushing me. And if you push somebody, you know what's, you know what's going to happen? They're, they're likely to push back and further entrench. So I'm already offended by the, this guy's lack of sales skill. And so what you need to do is you need to give them an option and uh, go negative. Be like, hey, you know, sounds like we should end this date now. Uh, well, I love you, Bobby. But he didn't do that at all. And he's like, why not? So... Being in sales, whenever I buy something, dude, I just act like my worst prospect because I know that that's how to get good deals and I know that prices are fucking made up. So I just say, 
Why not? Um, I have a moral problem with car washes and I will never wash my car as long as I live. And he was like, um, and you could see the kind of the, the, the rusty gears in his mind, you know, eroded by meth, just turning and be like, uh, that's so ridiculous. I don't even know what to say. So he just, he just puts on this like whiny guilting face and is like, come on, man. And I wanted to tell him your guilt is delicious. Get more sad, more sad. Let me taste your tears. Let me feed off your sadness. But I just put my hand on my pistol because I didn't want any trouble. But I just was like, hey, no worries, ma'am. All good. Sorry. No, thank you. He moved along. I put gas in the car. I drove off. But that illustrates to truly be good at sales, you have to find those people who have the pains. If they don't have the pains, they're not a prospect. Even if my car was incredibly dirty, not a prospect. I have a moral problem with washing my car. Or the same is true for your buying influences. They enter the buy-sell encounter hoping to win too. And they leave the encounter satisfied when and only when they feel that it has served their personal self-interest. And I'm, I'm bumping up on about to scream about how awesome capitalism is. But that's the great thing about capitalism, dude. It's like a perpetual motion machine. Value is actually created when people trade. You know, the, it, it, and the craziest thing is like in any trade, you know, the difference between how much the, the, the product costs the supplier and how much the buyer values it, there's usually enough gap in there that both parties can win. Like the sales rep can even get paid a commission. The company can build a profitable business and the customer can all win if you do this right, because buyer losses are our losses too. Why? The answer isn't altruism. It isn't because we want to be nice or polite or ethical. Those reasons are gravy. The meat and potatoes reason is purely pragmatic. When your buyers win, you win. <sighs> Fuck, dude. Moving to the conclusion by Bob and Steven, and then we're going to roll out of here. Sales improvement programs usually end with a snappy little speech about positive mental attitude, hard work, and the sales trainer wishing the assembled sales reps good luck out in the trenches. We don't end our programs that way, and we won't end this book that way. Because when you're selling strategically, it's not about luck. It has worked for over 20 years and in dozens of industries because it is founded on logic and a sound understanding of the key elements of the complex sale. By applying the methodology consistently, you make your own luck. The reason that strategic sales professionals are able to make their own luck is they understand two critical keys to sales success. The first is method. This is a planned system with logical steps and a repeatable process. The second key is something we've stressed again and again in our personal workshops. It's the importance of constant reassessment. You get the most out of strategic selling if you treat it as a dynamic system, one that always is in the process of refinement. In the words of a Midwest branch manager who attributes his latest sales manager of the year award to our programs, the more I practice, the better I get. Strategic selling is a lifetime approach to the complex sale. Luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And if 
you and your buying influences continue to win in all your sales objectives, then we at Miller Hyman have won as well. Well, holy shit. Dude, I just I just feel like I feel like I just killed the the world's first vampire and I discovered the stake through the heart trick. And this book is relevant mostly if you're working a complex sales job. In the same way that you kind of need to know jujitsu to understand the importance of a leg lock. If you don't work a sales job, some of this might have been too in the weeds. But as we said long ago on this here podcast, once you see the way in one thing, you see the way in all things. The principle that a method, that a process for sales and getting things done exists is as life-changing as water. Whether you're a business-to-business sales rep or even if you're just trying to get promoted, we learn from Mahan. We need to move off the solution. We need to get out all the issues. We need to understand evidence and impact, context and constraints. Then we need to figure out the prospect's rough budget. We're not negotiating, but we're just like, hey, could you see yourself between X and Y? If no, let's talk about it. And finally, we need to understand their decision-making process. And where Mahan gave us a few tools, this book was the dissertation on the decision step. In all sales, we must find the economic buyer. We gotta follow the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Go find the person who has the gold. The user buyer, who's the person that will be most affected day to day? The technical buyer, this bitch will object on a technicality, sniff them out, charm them, make them happy. Maybe their technicality is even cool and real and you gotta just help them. And the coach, the spirit guide, to lead us through the elephant graveyard and into the garden of Eden. For to truly ascend to sales mastery, to honor the way, why would we ever ignore 50% of the human body? And why would we ever ignore the decision step? What? And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at curiouslydisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.